Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the show, we're going to enjoy the next in our series of special programmes focusing on UBS's annual flagship Greater China Conference, the 22nd edition of which took place virtually this past month under the banner A New Horizon – People, Planet, Prosperity. The GCC has long enjoyed tremendous interest and the latest iteration was certainly no exception. Despite that virtual status, there were more than 4,500 attendees, including 3,500 institutional investors and more than 280 Chinese-listed and private companies. In these few programmes, we'll be dipping into the GCC and bringing you insights and highlights from the event. Today, we have something very special indeed for you, because we're hearing from a legendary voice in economics, psychology and behavioural science. The winner of the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, Daniel Kahneman. As part of UBS's Nobel Perspectives programme, which unlocks the amazing knowledge and insights of Nobel laureates in economics, We've been lucky enough to hear from Kahneman before on this very show. He appeared a few years back when he featured in conversation with his dear friend, another titan in economics, Richard Thaler. Today's episode features Kahneman's brilliant insights through a particular prism, that of his recent book, Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. The book explores, well, fundamentally, it concerns why people make bad judgments and how to make better ones the differing nature of noise and bias when it comes to decision-making. Kahneman began his session at the UBS Greater China Conference by talking about exactly that distinction and by expanding on how we can all become better decision-makers by reducing the influence of noise on our processes. Well, it turns out that it's quite easy to see when you think of physical measurement and we think of judgment and actually of decision-making as well as a sort of measurement where you, there is a scale and you're looking at an object and you're deciding, you're measuring some attribute of that object with the, your mind is your instrument. So judgment and measurement share the same theory. And now in measurement, it's easy to see that there are really two kinds of errors. If I measure the length of the line to a very high degree of precision multiple times, I will make errors. In fact, it is guaranteed that we'll make errors if you know the scale of measurement is fine enough. Now, the average of these errors is bias. And so if I go systematically too high or too low, that's bias. But the dispersion of these errors, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, even if there is no bias, the measurement is not precise. If there is a lot of variability, that is noise. And it turns out you can find bias and noise in judgment as well as in measurement. So in bias, to give you an example, if I have a variety of people forecasting the, the state of the economy for next year, and then you wait a year and you see the errors that people make, the forecasting errors that people make. Now you can find among your forecasters, you can find a general bias. So they could be optimistic about next year or they could be pessimistic about next year. Wait for the end of the year and we'll know that. But there is something that you can know immediately without waiting. You can tell how much noise there is among the forecasters. And the noise among the forecasters is simply their dispersion. 
Some are much more optimistic than others. Some are pessimistic. You don't know who of them is right, and you don't because you don't know the correct answer. But variability, noise, is something that you can measure even when you don't know the correct answer. And for another example, which is where my journey in the study of noise began, I was consulting with an insurance company and looking at a large group of underwriters. And I had the idea of measuring whether how well they agree with each other. So we presented a set of risks, well-defined, the kind of risk that they assess every day. And we asked them to put a dollar value on this risk. So there were, say, about 50 underwriters putting a dollar value on several risks. Now, I asked the executives of the company the following question. Take two underwriters at random and compute the average premium that they set. Compute the difference between the premiums that they set. Divide the difference by the average. In short, in percentages, by how much do you expect two randomly chosen underwriters to differ from each other? And I invite the audience to think about that question because they probably have an answer because everybody tends to have the same answer, which is about 10%. This is a number that people find tolerable for noise divergence among individual professionals. The answer is that the average difference was 50%, not 10%. It was five times larger than expected. And this is a phenomenon that we find repeatedly. So we find that in a venture capital firm that has many offices, you, they evaluate the same prospect and they put a dollar value on it. And you, you can do exactly the same thing. You can take two people at random and you measure by how much they differ. The average difference in one study was over 40%. That is noise. And that's very different from bias. Bias is overstating or understating. It's being optimistic or pessimistic. It's a systematic average error. But noise is just the variability. An interesting conclusion of the book is around sample size and the question of whether we have enough samples to get to the right place. Will errors cancel out or is this an incorrect way to forecast? That is a very important point because... We tend to think of errors as cancelling out. You make some errors on the positive side, some errors on the negative side. And that is absolutely true. If you're measuring the same object multiple times, then errors will tend to cancel out. If you have forecasters forecasting next year, and if they're unbiased, some of them will be optimistic, some pessimistic, but the average of multiple judgments will be closer to the truth than most individual judgments. But noise is something else. It is not repeated measurements of the same object and computing the average. It's the variability among these judgments. And that doesn't cancel out. So if one underwriter sets the premium too high and the other sets the premium too low, those errors don't cancel out. They both made an error, and both errors are costly to the insurance company. That is noise. 
And that's the difference between noise and bias. So averaging multiple judgments reliably reduces noise, not bias. That is, if you take the average of several biased judgments, the average will be biased. But you can actually guarantee by taking enough measurements or by taking other steps, you can constrain and reduce noise. The important point, which I really need to stress because it is so counterintuitive, is that bias and noise are actually equally important as sources of errors. And when, you know, in the basic formula for inaccuracy, when you measure the global inaccuracy of a set of predictions, say, then the basic formula that inaccuracy is the square of the bias plus the square of the noise. So in that formula, they have the same way. And this is very difficult for people to get their heads around because we think so easily about average errors and noise doesn't come to mind that readily. Are there some systems more prone to noise, particularly as it relates to investing, perhaps? For very simple judgments, I think this is true. But it really doesn't take a high level of complexity to get a lot of noise. And our real our rule, based on actually a lot of evidence, is that wherever there is human judgment, there is noise. And that's obvious. You know, when we say something is a matter of judgment, we expect disagreement. So some degree of disagreement seems reasonable in matters of judgment. But there is more noise than you expect like four or five times as much in many situations. And that noise is a source of errors, and controlling those errors will improve accuracy. Hiring people is an intuitive process, first and foremost, with multiple methods. What does state-of-the-art practice in hiring the right people for the right roles look like? How does Kahneman define best practice in doing this? What we know about the state of the art is that predicting performance on the job is very difficult. An individual's performance on the job doesn't depend only on that individual. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on who the person's boss is and how well they get along. It depends on many things that actually don't exist at the time that you're making the hiring decision. So all of these are We call them objective ignorance. Those are facts you cannot know, and they reduce your validity. So you cannot be precise when there is uncertainty out there. But in addition, we know that intuitive predictions are not as accurate as they could be. And that human judgment, it is quite possible to improve on intuition. Indeed, it's not very difficult. And the template for thinking about this is interviewing, which I'm sure is what you do when you hire people. So we draw a distinction between two kinds of interviews. The normal interview we call unstructured. That is, you haven't prepared your questions in advance. The object is to form an impression of the candidate and to become confident in your impression that you know how good a candidate that person is. This is unstructured interviewing. Structured interviewing consists of really the following. You decide what attributes of the person are important. For example, originality or expertise or or reliability, whatever. And you a 
assess each of these attributes in turn with questions that come from a pool of questions that you present in, in advance. A structured interview is not a survey. It's, you know, you had a list of questions prepared for me. That's a sort of structured interview. Turns out, on a massive amount of research, structured interviews are better, more accurate, lead to more accurate predictions of performance than unstructured interviews. And the difference is large. And since unstructured interviews are really the norm, there is a lot of room for improvement by simply switching from unstructured, from an unstructured process to a structured process. And this is almost guaranteed to improve the accuracy of prediction. It will never be good for the reason I explained earlier, but it can be a lot better than it normally is. In the investing context, once again, when is it important to trust one's intuition? Are there times when we should do this? It really depends on the kind of investment that you're considering. I think that if we're dealing with the stock market and without inside information, then you shouldn't trust your intuition. That is really well established. And on other issues like evaluating a specific investment or in a company or you know, in a piece of real estate where that is where there is room for judgment, including for highly experienced people, intuitive judgment, but they have to have a lot of experience. On the stock market, I would strongly advise people have intuitions and they shouldn't trust them. But I do want to mention one thing. When you talk to experienced traders on the stock market, they will tell you something that is correct about their intuition. They will sometimes tell you that when they're losing, when things are not going well, they stop trusting their intuition and they go by the book or they go by the formula. And I think that is probably a good idea. And it's a good idea because trading emotionally leads to overtrading, leads to mistakes. So the more you do when you're very worried, the more mistakes you're going to make. And in that respect, the people that I spoke to had that intuition that sometimes they shouldn't trust their intuition. And I think they were right. You know, I would add that when they trust their intuition, they might do better not to trust it. Let's consider loss aversion next. This is something that is, that is innate, but why are we a little irrational when it comes to the power of historical prices paid and so on? What drives this behaviour? Well, in the first place, I'd like to, to draw a picture of what rationality is, what it would be to be perfectly rational. And the perfectly rational agent, which is, you know, what is assumed in some theories of finance and economics, thinks in terms of final states. The rational agent thinks, how wealthy will I be if I take that gamble and it works? How wealthy will I be if I take that gamble and it, and it doesn't work? You think in terms of final states. People think differently. People think when they are taking a gamble, will I win or will I lose? And that's not the same thing. Because when you are looking at final states, there is no win and loss. You're looking at final states and, and you're seeing your attitudes to these states. But when you're thinking in terms of gains and losses, there is an asymmetry. 
the losses appear to loom larger than the gains. You know, there are many problems with measuring that, but you know, as a crude idea, about twice as much. That gives you a sense. And it turns out this is really very important in wealth management. And it turns out that when you talk to very rich investors, and this is something that I actually studied and I was involved with, they have a sort of number in their head, which is how much they can afford to lose. And that number is extremely important and it sets a limit. So this, a lot of investment is done in this way to the extent that you know, we advise for people to, to think differently about the wealth they want to keep and the wealth they're willing to gamble and separating those two as we call them into mental accounts and think differently about them. And that may turn out, I think, to improve people's performance and certainly their mental state. Now, over the last couple of years, there's perhaps understandably in the pandemic been a renewed focus on themes like health and well-being, also perhaps more fundamentally on happiness itself. Let's talk about that next and maybe specifically how happiness and good decision-making relate to one another. There's this notion, if you want good advice, find someone that doesn't care about your feelings. Does Daniel Kahneman agree with that? And are those two things, happiness and good decision-making, mutually exclusive? Well, in general, the advantage of advisors over the individual who is involved is that the advisor cares less and is less prone to emotions. So, for example, if somebody is considering, say, a surgery that is frightening and risky in the short term, but by and large is a good bet, then an advisor who doesn't feel the fear that the patient feels, an advisor might say quite strongly, you should have that surgery, although the, the patient himself or herself may be frightened of it. So the advantage of the advisor is that they can think long term. They are not influenced by immediate emotions and by the immediate situation. That is a very important asset. And finding advisors, my example, my best friend is Richard Thaler, the guru of behavioral economics, and he has that characteristic. He likes me a lot. I trust him completely. He couldn't care less you know, about my emotions when he is giving me advice. And that, I think, is a characteristic of very good advice. And what then about optimism? Is optimism a bias? Well, there are really two sides to optimism. Optimism is the best thing that a person can have. I would really, for a child or a grandchild, I would, my first wish, I wish them optimism. Uh, optimists are happier people, and they, in that sense, have better lives. But optimists, they don't see the odds correctly, and sometimes it's important to know the odds. And so optimism is a mixed blessing. But by and large, optimists are not only happier, they also are more influential because they think things can be done that other people are afraid of. and that gives them influence. And if you look at successes, all the very successful people were highly optimistic. 
But that doesn't mean that all optimists will be highly successful. Most optimists are going to have to achieve less than they're expecting, but a few will achieve great things. Those of us, myself included, who are pessimists, we are in a narrow range, a narrower range of, of achievements. The brilliant Daniel Kahneman there, he was talking at the 2022 UBS Greater China Conference in January. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can find out more about UBS's Nobel Perspectives programme. Head to UBS.com now and search for Nobel Perspectives. You can hear more special episodes of this show about the GCC and more featuring other brilliant Nobel laureates in economic sciences too. Browse the archive of shows at monocle.com now or dip in and follow wherever you get your podcasts. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.